Let's ask God to help us with his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do pray in uh, your great mercy uh, that we would hear this word as your word, the word of the living and true God, and that we would listen to you. Help us not to harden our hearts, but to believe what you say, and believing you to put it into action. And help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly. In Jesus' name, Amen. Uh, as you heard in the reading, Hebrews 4 is preoccupied with the idea of rest. It's mentioned ten times in the first eleven verses. Entering rest, God's rest, a Sabbath rest. And in our busy lives, that has a good ring to it, doesn't it? Rest. Often that's all we want, isn't it? A good break, perhaps a holiday, a bit of a rest. But sometimes we also long for something deeper and more enduring. A rest from hearing of evil. A rest from struggling with wrong in our own lives, whether wrong we suffer or wrong we do or attempted to do. A rest from anxious striving to make ends meet, to get to the end of the day with the family intact. A rest from struggling with ill health. A rest from pain. A rest from the grief that gnaws quietly at our hearts. The idea of rest resonates with some of our deepest longings. And so a promise of rest gets our attention. We think that might be good news. But we do need to know more, don't we? Because there is some rest at which we hesitate. The rest home. The rest that's exclusion from life. The rest which is all lost. So what exactly is this rest? Rest that's spoken of as his, that is, God's rest, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. How do we enter this rest, which is God's rest? When in our wearying world can we start to enjoy rest? Oh, and what is it about this rest that moves the author, that moves God to say we should fear that any should fail to enter it, that moves him to urge us to strive to enter this rest? Now, they're all important questions to answer as we go through this passage. But to fail to answer the personal questions as we look at Hebrews 4 would be actually to fail to engage with the author's God's purpose in giving us this book. You know those personal questions. Can you confidently look forward to this rest? Do you fear that others may fail to enter this rest? Are you actively striving to make sure that you and your brothers and sisters enter the rest spoken of here? So let's start by unpacking rest in Hebrews 4. At chapter 4, verse 1, the author is continuing the section he started in chapter 3, verse 7, with his quote of Psalm 95. In this section of the psalm, the Holy Spirit is directly addressing the first hearers of Hebrews and us. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says now, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. In chapter 3, as we saw last week, he was 
telling us why the generation that left Egypt with Moses failed to enter the promised land, why God swore they would never enter his rest. He concluded chapter 3 by saying, we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Now in these verses where he continues to apply Psalm 95, quoting it three times, his focus has shifted to making sure that all of us, his hearers, all his readers, do enter that rest God spoke of. He starts by reminding us that the promise of entering God's rest still remains. That is, can still be responded to, still be effective for those who believe it. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it, for good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. This promise of rest is the promise, he says, that we've heard in the good news that's come to us. And that's a, a reference to what he's spoken of in Hebrews 2. That's, as he says, yeah, a reference to what he's spoken of in Hebrews 2, where he's told us that the good news was first preached to us by our Lord and then shared by those who heard him. So this good news is the message the apostles preach that Jesus died for our sins and was raised on the third day by God, raised with authority to forgive and raised to eternal life all who repent, that is, who say, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is the boss, and believe the gospel. Now, rest is not the usual way most of us summarise the promises of the gospel, the blessing of believing in Jesus, is it? We tend to think of other things, forgiveness, resurrection, adoption, but our author, relying on Psalm 95, has focused the blessings of believing the gospel on rest. And he does that because it allows him to use what happened to the generation that came out of Egypt with Moses as a warning to us. And it also allows him to pick up and apply to believers, to us today, some rich strands of Old Testament hope and expectation. So he mentions the good news that we have heard to remind us that the generation who came out of Egypt with Moses, the people who failed to enter uh, the rest and died in the wilderness, had also had good news preached to them. The good news of God's promise to give them the land freely, graciously. Oh yes, and the good news of the report of the faithful spies Caleb and Joshua there in Numbers 14, they say, the land's an exceedingly good land. Oh, verse 8, if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. He will give it to us. This is a good land. But the people hadn't responded with faith to that good news. They didn't join Joshua and Caleb who had listened to and believed God. They didn't join them in believing God. And so the people failed to enter God's rest. And that's a reminder for you this morning, isn't it? Mere hearing the promise of God, the good news of God, has no benefit by itself. The promise must be met by faith. 
in the hearer. You have to meet the promise with faith. And notice both David and the author of Hebrews are talking of God's rest. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my, my rest, says God. This rest, God's rest, is, says our author, the rest that's actually spoken of in Genesis 2. Verse 4, he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. That, says our author, is the rest God is speaking of in Psalm 95. And that's why that rest has always been available to enter. We could enter that rest Well, in Moses' day, in David's day, in the author's day, in our day, because it's been available for the faithful to enter from the time of creation. Now let's think about what we know of that rest in Genesis 2. Firstly, it's a time of completion, isn't it? It says there, God rested on the seventh day from all his works. He rested because he had finished But that, of course, completion is not in action. As our Lord said, my father's working until now and I am working even while God has rested from all his works. And that rest in Genesis 2 was a time really characterised by fellowship for it ushered in relationship in the garden between God and Adam and Eve. And it was good. There was nothing there in Genesis 2 verses 1 to 4 to mar God's rest. It's said to be all very good. No sin, no evil, no death present in God's rest. But Psalm 95 speaks of the generation who left Egypt failing to enter rest because they failed to enter the promised land. Why does it speak of the land as rest? It's because the land is the first of two pictures God gives his people to help us see how good this rest will be, to flesh out our hope of rest. This rest, as we'll see, is the land. And yet, the rest spoken of in Psalm 95 is not the land. You see, the land of Canaan, the land of promise, was spoken of as a place of rest. Deuteronomy 12, there on the plains of Moab before, well, the children of the generation that perished in the wilderness, before they finally crossed the Jordan and occupied the land, Moses said to them, verse 9, you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit and when he gives you rest, from all your enemies around so that you live in safety. Then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. That's where you'll bring your offerings and contributions. You shall rejoice there before the Lord your God. And so the land would be the place where the people of Israel had rest from their enemies and rest from their journeying. More it would be the place where they could enjoy the goodness of God's provision, the place where they could flourish, would enjoy the richness of peace with God and could rejoice before the Lord in the place where he chose to dwell. And that theme is, in a sense, developed. The Psalms speak of Jerusalem as God's resting place forever. 
The generation of those who left Egypt with Moses plainly did not come to possess this land where they could find rest. They perished in the wilderness, failing to enter rest because of their unbelief. And so on the one hand, the rest spoken of in Psalm 95 could have been thought of as the land of promise. But at another level, our author goes on to say it is plainly not the land of promise. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he, that is God, appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. You see, the children of that generation that died in the wilderness, they did enter the promised land, didn't they? They came into the land where Joshua, it says in the book of Joshua, gave them rest, where the Lord gave them rest through Joshua, verse 44, from all their enemies. The Lord gave them rest on every side. But the author of Hebrews tells us this is not the rest being spoken of in Psalm 95 because that rest is rest we can still enter. The rest that God says today you can enter. So the rest that Joshua given them in the land is not the rest spoken of in Psalm 95. So at one level the rest is the land but not the land. How can that be? Well, it's because the land of Canaan is a type of the rest God has planned for his people. And you can think of type as a kind of uh, preliminary sketch that gives the shape, the outline of the final work that will be in the hands of the artist. Oh, another way of thinking of a type suggested in the book of Hebrews is to think of it as the shadow of the reality that is to come, cast backwards into the life of God's old covenant people to help them look forward to the reality, to give them a sense of its shape and substance. The promised land was a picture of God's rest because it was to be the picture of a new creation, a new Eden, in which all the effects of the fall of human sin would be undone. See, what did we have in Eden? And Graham Goldsworthy's given us a memorable summary of that, hasn't he? We've got God's people, Adam and Eve, living in God's presence, in his place, under God's rule, the command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, what were we to have in the land of Canaan? We saw that in the Deuteronomy passage, didn't we? We're to have God's people, loyal to God, trusting him, worshipping him, living in God's place, the place where he has chosen to put his name, living in his presence under his rule in the covenant. And so, in a sense, the land is a picture of what was lost by sin being restored. But, of course, we know that the land could never be the new creation, would only ever be a picture of it, because sin, the cause of all our dis-ease, our unrest, still had not been dealt with. And God says there's no peace, no rest for the wicked. 
the, the continuing presence of sin is obvious in the story, isn't it? The golden calf episode when they just come out of Egypt. Oh, the event, the rebellion remembered in Psalm 95 where they hardened their heart to God's word. And of course, the people's sin just continues to the point that they lose the land. But what does the picture of the land as the rest that is still to be entered tell us of that rest? Well, it tells us that that rest will be a place of peace and security, a place of plenty, of freedom from want, a place of peace, freedom from fear of all our enemies, a place, yes, where God's people will dwell in God's presence. The land was to point the people to the true rest, the rest of God, revealed from the beginning in God's rest from his labours. And thinking of that rest of God in Genesis 2, the author brings us a second picture of that rest in verse 9, a picture from the remembrance of God's rest in Israel's observance of rest on the seventh day. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest is also rested from his works as God did from his. Now the word translated Sabbath rest actually has the sense of a Sabbath observance, a Sabbath observance for the people of God. But the author's not suggesting believers reinstitute keeping a literal Sabbath, which the early church abandoned very early on to meet on the first day of the week, on Resurrection Remembrance Day. The New Testament nowhere commands Sabbath observation for Gentile congregations. In fact, verse 10, the next verse, make it clear that this Sabbath rest, this Sabbath observance is future. The rest we enter when we cease from all our works, just as God did from his on the seventh day of the creation story. That ceasing from work does not happen in this life. So what is God saying when he speaks very deliberately of that future time of rest as a Sabbath observance, a Sabbath rest? Well, the Sabbath observance was meant to be a time of joy and celebration as well as rest from hard toil, a time of refreshment and renewal. It was a time to praise God, to remember and meditate on his works, to delight in him. It was a day that could only be enjoyed by those who trusted in God, who knew that they lived by every word the Lord had spoken. Only they can properly rest. Only those embraced in his covenant. Again, you see, the Sabbath is a type looking beyond itself to the full and final rest which it also remembered. The rest of God. And this is the rest that we are being urged to enter. Not a shadow of the rest, but the reality, not the model, the type, but the thing itself. And that's a time of joy and celebration, a time of delighting in the Lord. The rest we have a promise of entering is a sharing in God's rest. And again, think how good that will be. That's a time of completion, when we have finished our labours. It's a time of fellowship with God when all will be very good with nothing, no sin or evil or death to mar this rest. 
and it will be characterised by what we see in the types, but so much greater. Peace, security, plenty, flourishing of life without fear, joy and celebration and praise. In fact, if you want to think of how much greater that rest is to those types, those models, then think of the land and the Sabbath as being like those cardboard architect models. You've seen them, you know, they put out the new housing development, they've got all these little cardboard boxes, right? Well, the types are like those cardboard models, but God's rest is the building itself, real, substantial, solid, true. This is the rest we're to share in. It's the end of our longings. It's the rest of the new creation. <coughs> so how do we come to share in this rest? You know, it's a, it might sound a bit abstract, but that's actually like asking, how can I become unimaginably rich, unimaginably whole, unimaginably good? It's a wonder that we can even ask that question, isn't it? But the answer is clear. The wilderness generation, as we've heard, were excluded from this rest by their unbelief. And that unbelief expressed itself in disobedience, a failure to trust God and go up and possess the land. We are included in this rest by belief. Belief in the gospel preached to us. That gospel is about his son Jesus who died for our sins and rose again. And so this rest is given as a gift to faith. It's through faith in Jesus that we come to enjoy what is promised. But just as unbelief showed itself in disobedience, belief will show itself in obedience. Listening to Jesus and doing what he commands, the obedience of a persevering confession, of loving Jesus' people, of loving all, of meeting to encourage one another to persevere. But if this rest is entered by faith, when can it be entered? Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today. Did you hear God speaking in his word? He has appointed a day. Today, this very day, to hear and respond with faith. Today is the day to listen and believe. But the enjoyment of this rest is mainly future for us, isn't it? It's a, a promised rest, promised to those who persevere each day in faith, in listening and believing. In fact, Revelation speaks of that rest as being enjoyed by those who die in the Lord, die believing whatever trials they have faced. Write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labours, for their deeds follow them. It's in the new heaven and earth at the resurrection when every enemy is placed under Christ's feet that we will come to the fullness of this rest which is promised. Yet, like many other blessings of the gospel, there is an anticipation of that rest even now in trusting Jesus. Come to me, says Jesus, come to me, all who labour and are heavy laden, 
and I will give you rest. Jesus gives his people rest even now as they trust and follow him, as they take up his yoke. Rest from anxious striving to be right with God on our own terms. Rest from trying to justify ourselves. Rest from fear, the fear of death, the fear of being excluded. The rest of humble following, where we start to know in trusting Jesus the peace that one day we will enjoy in full. This rest, God's rest, is glorious. This rest is God's promise to his people, those who trust his son. This rest is to be entered by persevering faith, the faith that responds to the good news today and every day. And the author gives two commands in relation to this rest that sandwich his description of this rest and his insistence that this rest is still there to be entered. And so at the beginning, verse 1, he says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. One of the reasons I chose the ESV over the NIV was because the NIV translated the Greek word fear as be careful, confusing in a sense the expression with the motivation. I wanted you to hear fear, for fear, like other emotions, is a motivator. It's something we feel in the pit of our stomachs that makes us act. Fear may is uncomfortable, but fear does not need to paralyse us. It can actually move us to good and helpful applications, actions. A surgeon's fear of complications, for example, leads him or her to plan out the operation, to carefully check the instruments, to count the swabs in and out. It leads to appropriate action. A rock climber's fear of falling leads them to carefully check their equipment, their ropes and anchors. It leads to appropriate action. A right fear can prevent disaster. And it would be a disaster if any of us here failed to enter this promised rest because of unbelief. It is something to fear, isn't it? That any of us should be shut out forever from this rest, left to the consequences of our sins. This fear should make us diligent encouragers, as we've been told in Hebrews 3, encourage one another daily, lest any of you be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. This fear should make us diligent encouragers of and truthful speakers to each other. Our fear for others should overcome our natural diffidence or laziness or self-interest that would stop us from talking to each other about Jesus, which would stop us from admonishing the sins of each other. Fear, yeah, it may even wake us up at night to pray for our brothers and sisters that God would grant them repentance and perseverance. You see, we have to remember what is at stake, eternal rest or eternal wrath. We mustn't let our routine, you know, where we regularly 
come and hear of eternal things make eternal things routine. And we mustn't be afraid of emotion. <laughs> mustn't be emotion shy. We should have emotions appropriate to reality. And so don't shy away from feeling the urgency and importance of people trusting Jesus and persevering in that trust. You see, the possibility of someone sitting amongst us and losing interest, we know from experience, is real. We see it, don't we? People who just stop coming, who drift away, whose faith in our Lord's words has been choked by the cares of this world or delight and riches or the desire for other things. And when you see that, you should fear for them and act. And you can't outsource that responsibility to staff or your growth group leader. This word is addressed to us while the promise of entering his rest still stands. Let us fear. That's each one of us. And the second command is at the conclusion of our author's discussion of rest. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. As well as wanting others to be saved, we have to accept responsibility for ourselves to make sure we make it to that promised rest. He tells us to strive, to be zealous to enter. How do we do that? Well, he says we mustn't fall short by the same sort of disobedience, mustn't follow the example of those who rebelled on the border of the promised land, mustn't let a sinful, unbelieving heart develop in us. See, that generation, they made themselves the final authority. They put their trust in themselves and so hardened their hearts to God's word. In this habit of unbelief, when the life-saving command came, go up, they disobeyed their saving God and they perished. We are to be the opposite of them and we are to be earnest in that. Make every effort, strive. You see, grace is the source of effort. Grace is not the source of indifference. And effort is not the denial of grace, but it's fruit. So we should be zealous zealous to keep on listening to the word and maintaining a good conscience about it. You know, where we hear God command something, we make sure we do it. Where we hear God tell us something, we change our thinking to conform to it. And yes, zealous to keeping on exercising our confidence in drawing near to God in prayer with all our concerns. Zealous to hold fast to Jesus, to confess him, Lord, in the face of hostility, zealous to live in hope with our eyes fixed on our goal. We make every effort by living out the obedience of faith. And we must, for God has spoken his word on who will and who will not enter his rest. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 
and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, the word of God spoken here is, first of all, the spirit-spoken word of Psalm 95. But what's said of Psalm 95 is true of all scripture. Scripture is not a dead word, something that you can hear and then forget about, leave behind, as it were, like a corpse in a cemetery or like a dusty book on a shelf. The word of God is living, always present and active. It carries its own energy. It's not dependent on us or our faith for its fulfilment. It always achieves its purpose, the purpose God has for it, whether it's in creation or salvation or judgment. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Oh, the Gospels, the power of God for salvation and yes, here Jesus in John 12, verse 48. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him or her on the last day. The word of God, living, active, penetrating and exposing. Even the divisions inaccessible to us, the deepest recesses of our being are accessible to the word. It can cut through our confusions and self-deceptions. God's word does God's work and his word, Psalm 95, has pronounced his verdict on unbelief on those who harden their heart. They will never, he says, enter my rest. Now hear that because the word won't be fooled by appearances. You see, you can sit in church and fool others, maybe even fool yourself. Sit there and think, I am safe, yet have a rebellious heart that says no to God, that says, I'm not going to change to do what God says. I'm, I'm not going to well, give up my coveting and envying. I'm not going to forgive. I'm not going to abandon my secret lust. No. Oh, that says, I'm not going to change my mind to conform it to God's truth. I'm not going to start to think judgment's just and deserved or that there's really only one way to God and that people need to... No, I'm... You can sit here and fool others, but you cannot fool God's word or avoid its judgment on unbelief. You won't be able to hide your rebellious heart from God. You won't be able to pretend before him to a faith that you don't have. God's word is clear and powerful. It says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And there is no going back on that verdict. That's why we must make every effort to enter God's rest, to persevere, to address unbelief amongst us urgently. But praise God, this same word is the word that calls to us today with the gracious promise of God. His promise of rest to those who do heed his voice, who do hear the gospel of Jesus and repent and believe, trusting what Jesus says. That promise too is the living and active word, most certain to be fulfilled. For those who listen and believe, this living word, will bring them into God's eternal rest, bring them to the new heaven and earth, raise them from the dead. In the gospel of Jesus, 
that wonderful message of his death for our sins and rising, we can actually meet the one to whom we must give account before whom all our lives are open as our father. We can meet him as our father like the prodigal as we turn back to him, confess our doing wrong and seek his mercy. And the extraordinary thing is he promises in his word that he will receive us, that he will receive you as you turn back and trust his son for Jesus' sake, that he will be your eternal father who, though he knows all about you, will spare you in the judgment. Hebrews chapter 4 is written to make sure that every one of us Each of you gets there, that none of us fail to reach rest. So let it do its good in your life by receiving it with faith. Strive to enter and stir one another up to enter this promised rest. So refocus on the things above, the prize at the end of our race, the city at the end of our pilgrimage, the rest God promises his people. That rest is so good. Be determined to avoid developing that unbelieving, disobedient heart. For judgment on such a heart is clear and sure. They shall never enter his rest. You can't fool God, so don't try and fool yourself. So if you look at your heart and see sin, Don't shrug it off, let alone justify it. Repent, turn away from it and ask God to cleanse you and give you that pure heart that seeks only to please him. If you see little faith, ask him to strengthen and increase your faith. If you see doubt and confusion, ask him to grow you in knowledge of his will and conviction of its truth. Remember now is the day. Today, he calls to you. And then turn your gaze away from yourself to Jesus. See, God has given us an effective high priest, a trailblazer, someone who's gone before us to that rest. And he will bring us to God's rest when we keep our eyes fixed on him. So keep on being clear and confident in your confession of Jesus as Lord. Give thanks for him every day and receive the good news that promises rest with repentance and faith each day. Each day, dying to yourself to take up your cross and follow him. Each day, being filled with joy that in him you are forgiven. You have a hope of eternal life and you know God's eternal love. Each day, hear his voice. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, again we pray that today we would hear your voice, that we really would fear that any here should fail to enter because of unbelief. Fear and act. 
and that each one of us would strive to enter that rest, would be determined to keep on trusting Jesus and following him. We ask this in his name. Amen.